Well, hello there. This is Pastor Miles, and as I have been sharing as we've been starting off the new year, we are doing something a little bit different, or should I say a little bit new, in 2019. Actually, not new. We, we used to do this years and years and years ago, but it uh, hasn't been something that we've done for a while. But um, being that been getting a lot of questions from people about the messages every single week, which I think is a great thing, um, I wanted to find a way to be able to answer some of those questions a little more globally than locally, meaning uh, it's easy for me to answer a question to someone one-on-one -on -one when they come up and talk with me after a message, but I think it, it would be a little bit better if I am able to answer that question that one person brings for a larger audience, because I think that probably more than just a few people are having those kind of questions as we go through the scriptures. So uh, we put a phone number up on the screens during the message, and you can text your questions in. And my hope is that we will answer these in the form of a podcast and try and do it weekly. Probably most of the time it won't just be with me, but we'll have Pastor Mark or one of the other pastors here at the church as a part of it as well. But being that I don't have anyone else here at the office today, it's uh, Friday, so I thought that I'd sit down and take some time to go through some of the questions. As we've started off the new year, we began with a new series, a series that I called Life on Purpose, and I think that this is a really important series, uh, something that I've been kind of pondering for a while. And the reason that I think that it's so important is because uh, we are living in a culture where people seem to be unsure about what their purpose in life is, and I see this come up in lots of different areas. It comes up as I interact with people and uh, just hear their questions or some of their story, comes up in articles that I read online, it comes up in books that I'm reading, comes up in uh, podcasts I listen to. So I wanted to try and address this because it is my conviction that the Bible and the Christian faith has more to say about life and purpose than uh, most things that you'll find out there. And it has the only truly coherent worldview that is given. I mean, there's lots of other different worldviews out there, but those other worldviews, I don't think that they answer in a satisfactory sort of way, sort of way uh, the important questions that people ponder, philosophical questions that we wrestle with. They may not be questions that we wrestle with every single day as we're just going about our day, but when we are in a time of kind of thinking, a quiet space where no one else is and we're just left with ourselves and our thoughts, people are asking questions, questions having to do with purpose and questions having to do with identity and origin and destiny and all of these sort of things. Morality are interest, important questions that people ask. So when you get to the question of purpose, then you ultimately get to the question of meaning. And I think that the Christian faith, more than any other worldview, provides the best answers for the issues of purpose and meaning and, and all of that. So we've been talking about this over the last several weeks. We just finished up the series this last week, and in the last series I was speaking out of the Gospel of John, chapter um, 10, and we were looking at one of the final purpose statements of Jesus, because Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, he, on a number of occasions, he shares his purpose, what he came to do, and he does this in the form of I have come statements. So he says things like, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost, or I have come not to serve, but or not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Or in other places, he says, I have come to bear witness to the truth or to be a light to those who are in darkness or to save men's lives. So all of those statements give us an idea about the purpose of Jesus. So in talking about the purpose of Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. So 
we looked into that pretty deeply in, in that passage. There is the contrast between the work of Jesus to come to give life in that more abundantly, and in contrast to that, the thief that is in the world, the thief who has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And as I was talking about that, I was talking about the thief ultimately, uh, though there are thieves, plural, and robbers, plural, mentioned in John chapter 10, verses 1 and 8. In John chapter 10, verse 10, we have the thief. And uh, I think that you can make a pretty good case from the scriptures that the thief is ultimately Satan. And as in talking about that, I went back to Genesis chapter 3, where we have the first picture of the work of Satan in the world in the form of a serpent. And the question was texted in, how do we know that the serpent in the garden was Satan? That's a really good question, because, uh, you know, it's a serpent. It doesn't specifically say Satan. But primarily, to answer that question, the true nature of the serpent is revealed by his actions. And so in that passage, first off, he's a liar. And Jesus, I believe it's in John chapter 8, he makes the statement about Satan that he is the father of lies, and uh, he was a liar from the beginning. And so we see the lies of the serpent. That's really the first time we see a lie spoken. So the true nature of the serpent is revealed by his actions, that he's a liar, and that he's a tempter. And so as you go through the rest of the scriptures, you find Satan, he is the father of lies, and he is a tempter. But even more than that, when you get into the, Re the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, then we see another reference to the serpent, and it's found there in Revelation chapter 20, I believe it is. Let me look it up here. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. It says in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So uh, you go from the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, where we see the lying, tempting serpent, you fast forward to the last book of the Bible and one of the last events in history. Genesis 3 is like one of the first events in history. Revelation chapter 20 is one of the last events in future history. Hasn't happened yet. Predictive history. And there we read of the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. So I think the best answer for that question, which is, like I said, a really good question. How do we know that the serpent in the garden was Satan? Is what we see there. His true nature is revealed by his actions, that he's a liar and that he's the tempter. And then Revelation chapter 20 verse 2. Next question that was texted in, it says, in Genesis, where it says that you will bruise his heel. Again, this is talking about Genesis chapter 3 and the serpent, and after the serpent deceived Eve and tempted her and Adam, they both fall into sin. And then God speaks judgment. He speaks a curse upon the serpent there in Genesis chapter 3. And in verse 15, we have this, what's referred to as the Proto-Evangelion, the, the first gospel, if you will, the first allusion or prediction of the coming of Christ is given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so in Genesis 3, where it says that you will bruise his heel, how is that interpreted in the original language? Maybe the, the better question would be, how is that translated? Great question, but interpreted versus translated is, um, is the word probably there. So the translation, the, the word bruise or crush, when it says you will bruise his heel and he shall bruise your head, that word is, it's an ancient Hebrew word that um, is not used widely in the Bible. It's only used, I believe, four times, uh, twice there in Genesis chapter 3, and then uh, I think in the Psalms and also in the book of Job. Uh, but it says, you shall bruise his heel. The word is uh, shuf in, in Hebrew. I'm probably not saying that right, but 
that's the word and it, it can be translated bruise as it is twice in Genesis 3:15 but um, it could also be translated as crush um, and I believe it's translated as cover in another place but uh, the context helps to determine the translation, best translation, when you're looking at a lot of these words. And so it would seem to be bruise or crush is probably the best way to translate it there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So I think that you could use those fairly interchangeably. Next question that came in, it says, seems like there needs to be a distinction between, between being, to willing, being willing to lose your life, parentheses, someone taking your life, versus someone dying for what they believe, by taking others' lives as well as their own. They are willing to die for what they believe in. So I, I think trying to read between the lines of this question, uh, I think it probably has something to do with the difference between the way that Christian martyrs, going all the way back to Stephen in Acts chapter 2 and, and reading through books like Fox's Book of Martyrs, or, or even if you look at modern things on martyrs in the Christian faith, you can look at uh, Voice of the Martyrs magazine or their website. There, there is a difference between what we would think of as a, a traditional faithful Christian martyr and, um, like I said, reading between the lines of this question, I'm assuming that we're seeing the difference between that and the way that a radicalized Muslim would think of martyrdom. So there are those who have been radicalized in the Islamic faith and um, they along with various terrorist groups, where it's Hezbollah or Hamas or others, where they are enticed through their teaching and through ideology to, you know, go and sacrifice themselves, if you will, with a suicide bomb or some other thing, um, and kill people. And they believe that it's faithfulness to do that. There is a view among some radicals that in doing that, you are a martyr, and that you're going to receive a martyr's reward from Allah in eternity, in paradise. And uh, so there's a clear difference between what a radicalized suicide bomber terrorist would do and what we look at when we talk about a, a Christian martyr for their faith. I think it's really important that we make a distinction between, there is more than just a difference, there is a distinction that's very clear between these two. So um, obviously a martyr is one who dies for their faith. And really, when you look at that word, it's kind of an interesting word, because when Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he's telling his disciples that you shall receive power and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, that word witnesses is martyrus in the Greek. So it's where we get our English word martyr. Uh, so a, a, a true mar a martyr in the truest sense is a witness for Christ, and we add to that as we take this concept of a martyr in English and throughout the ages, we say that a witness for Christ who dies for their witness, that they are faithful in their witness for Christ, even to the point of death. And um, sometimes, if you look at history of Christian martyrs, they're given an opportunity to recant or to back away from their claims, their witness for Christ, um, you know, you will not be put to death, you will not be tortured, you will not go through this if you will just recant your faith. And they don't, and so they, they remain faithful even in the face of torture, even in the face of death or the death of their loved ones, and uh, we see just their faithfulness as witnesses for Christ. And so uh, that's a martyr, that's the truest sense of a martyr. Now when you see these people who are radicalized terrorists, really, who they believe themselves to be martyrs because they're going 
to take the lives of other people through their, um, their sacrifice of themselves, their suicide. And really, we should probably call it a homicide bomber instead of a suicide bomber. When we see that terrorists doing this sort of thing, they're, they're really disregarding the nature and command of God to not kill and to not murder. Um, that's not faithfulness. You know, we, we have the command of the scriptures. You go to uh, Exodus chapter 20. And the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment is, you shall not murder, you shall not kill. So here are these people going to do that, and they believe themselves faithful to Allah, but they're certainly not faithful to the God of Scripture in doing that. They are committed to their ideology, they're not committed to God. So there's a very clear difference. I hope I'm reading that question correctly, I may not be. Next question that we got are, what are the practical steps to making Jesus my purpose? Um... I, I think it's a great question. I might reword the question. Maybe I shouldn't, but I, I don't know that I, I... I didn't really preach that we make Jesus our purpose, though I would say that, you know, that's not necessarily a bad way to say it, but making the purpose of Jesus our purpose, adopting the purpose of Jesus. So what are the practical steps to adopting the purpose of Jesus? Well, the first thing I'd say is that we should begin to pray uh, that's the example that he gave, and we should pray in line with his evangelistic purpose. So the the underlying theme of the uh, purpose of Jesus, as it is revealed in these I have statements in the New Testament, is very evangelistic. And so you, you see that even in his exhortation for his disciples to pray. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion for them because they were they were scattered. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he says to his disciples, pray the Lord of the harvest that he'd send forth laborers into his harvest. And then the next chapter, he sends his disciples who are now praying for the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest. He sends them into the harvest to go and preach the gospel and to heal the sick and read Matthew chapter 10. It's a great passage. So, so we see there, Jesus exhorts his disciples to pray towards this end, that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers to reap the harvest. And the harvest is souls, it's people. So, um, the first thing I would say in adopting the, pra- the purpose of Jesus, a practical step, best practical step you can first take is to pray according to the evangelistic purpose of Jesus. And, um, and I believe that as you begin to pray in that way, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, sometimes we think that we, we you know, some t- how would I say it? Sometimes we pray in such a way as to try and change the mind and heart and will of God. And... Um, in reality, what often happens when we begin to pray to God and seek His, uh, seek Him in prayer, uh, we change more of our hearts through prayer and our minds through prayer than we change His hearts and His heart and mind through prayer. So, um, as we begin to pray in that way to the Lord, oftentimes He changes our heart and and begins to move in us in an evangelistic way. He gives us a passion for other people, um, for their salvation through prayer. So. I would say the best practical step that you can first take to make the purpose of Jesus your purpose is begin to pray in line with his prayer. There's kind of a follow-up on this question. It says, how is praying for someone going to bring them into a relationship with Jesus? How does prayer work? Uh, Is it the amount, intensity of prayer, and so forth? So uh, again, really good question. So obviously um, the, the question follows in line with what I was speaking about in this, that we need to pray in line with Jesus. But how is praying for someone uh, going to bring them to a relationship with Jesus? Well, I can think of a couple things. First, um, it's going to uh, shift our focus and our 
passion, if you will, to be able to, as we're praying for their salvation, we're thinking about their salvation, and it's going to, uh, I think, encourage us to share the gospel of salvation with them. But the other reality is that in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so there is, there's, I believe that there is both a, a sovereignty of God and responsibility of man component in the salvation of people. Now, of course, those who would be far on the sovereignty of God side and very Calvinistic in their soteriology, soteriology has to do with salvation, you know, how are people saved? Or those who would be on the flip side, very Arminian in their soteriology, this is the kind of counterbalance to the Calvinistic theological positions, uh, you know, they wouldn't agree with that statement where I say that, well, maybe, I I don't think they would if they were very extremely far to either side, that there is a component of the sovereignty of God and a component of the responsibility of man in the salvation of the lost. You know, this is why I believe Jesus would say to his disciples that you need to go and make disciples of all nations. You go preach the gospel. So uh, that's what he says in uh, Matthew and then Mark. There's commissions in each of the four gospels. And so go preach the gospel, go make disciples. So there, there's a human responsibility component to evangelism, to salvation, and there is the sovereignty of God component. So no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So when we are praying for people, we are praying for their salvation, and in praying for their salvation, then we are seeing God move. Uh, Ian Bounds said, where prayer is focused, power falls. So God is moving according to our prayers. And there are a number of places in the scriptures where God reveals that our prayers are involved in his working, which is very, very intriguing. So, you know, one of the passages that comes to mind, I believe it's either Isaiah 37 or Isaiah 38, uh, Hezekiah is the king over Israel, and the uh, Assyrians are coming against the children of Israel, and they are in a very dire situation. The city of Jerusalem is being besieged by the Assyrian army. And Hezekiah prays to God for intervention, and God says, because you have prayed to me against King of King Sennacherib of Assyria, I'm going to move in this way. So because you prayed, I mean, there, there's some component of human responsibility there. Obviously, God is sovereignly going to move, but there's human responsibility and God's sovereignty together. I, I love to see that in the scriptures. It pops up quite a bit. Um, but then the other part of this question was, is the amount, intensity of prayer important? And apparently it is because Jesus talks about, uh, he speaks of it in a kind of poetic or uh, narrative form, and he talks about the importance of asking and seeking and knocking and persistence in prayer. And so, yeah, I think we should be persistent in our prayers. And you know, we receive these prayer request cards every single week at the church. We put a lot of emphasis on prayer at the church, and our, our staff gathers and prays for these There are some prayer requests that are in there every single week for the salvation of friends and family. Same person's name every single week, and there are people persistently praying, and we just trust that God is going to move through that prayer. So then the next question that I received here was, I desire a more meaningful life. How do I know what God has called me to do? Um, There are two immediate things that come to mind. That question, I I love that question, a really good, important one, um, because... First off, we know what God has called us to do by seeing his explicit will in the scriptures. So the the revealed will of God, some people refer to it, is found in the scriptures. And there are passages where it clearly says, this is the will of God. 
couple of those are found in in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter to the Thessalonians. In in one of the passages, it it says there in First Thessalonians chapter four, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So first off, your sanctification is part of God's will that you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and that renewing of your mind and heart would transform your actions. So your sanctification is taking place that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel with sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles do who do not know God. So so there in that passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 and 5, there Paul is making clear, hey, this is God's sancti- this is his uh, will for you, your sanctification. Uh, and then another passage is one chapter later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So as you go through the scriptures, Genesis Revelation to Revelation, you will find uh, very clear statements of God's will for you, things that he's calling you to do. So that's the revealed will. But then people want to know what God's particular will or his special will or his personal will is for each of us. What is he calling me specifically to do? Is he calling me to be a missionary? Is he calling me to be a pastor? Is he calling me to be a firefighter or a police officer or an architect? You know, where's God's will in these things? And and here's something I've taught for years, many, many years. I think that one of the specific ways that God leads us into his call or his will for us, his very particular will for us, is he does so by desire. So Psalm 37 verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I think there are at least two ways that that can be interpreted. Some people interpret that, that as you delight in God, whatever that means, we can get into that another time. As you delight in God, then he's going to give you whatever your heart desires. Uh, We do not... I don't think that that's the best way to interpret that because we, we don't experience that. You know, I am trying to delight in God and I desire to have a Tesla Model X or whatever it may be. Um, and that hasn't happened yet. So I haven't received my desire yet. So he hasn't given me the desire of my heart. I think the better way to interpret that passage is as you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you new desires in your heart. He works in us to will, that is to desire, and to do his good pleasure, says Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling as you are doing the things that are the revealed will of God, working out your own salvation. This is the will of God, your sanctification. As you're doing those things, then you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as a result of that, God will work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. He's going to bring desires, new desires into your heart. That's the will component there, that he will work in you to desire and to do what's pleasing to him. And the awesome thing is, is that the the longer you walk with the Lord and the more that you get to know him, you realize that those things that are pleasing to God are ultimately going to be the things that are most satisfying and pleasing to us as well. This is where this meaning and through the purpose of Christ, this is where this meaning begins to come in. So if you're desiring to have a meaningful life, the best way for you to move into that meaning and to experience that is to find the thing that God has purposed for you, has called you to. First do what's revealed. You know, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you not be involved in sexual immorality. You rejoice always, pray without ceasing these things that are revealed in the scriptures. And then he's going to, as you're doing that, He's going to reveal to you what his particular will is. Next question. How do I get to a place where I am willing to give my life for Christ? Um, 
it's one thing to give your life for Christ. It's another thing to live your life for Christ. So uh, I don't think that you would ever get to the place where you would be willing to give your life to Christ for Christ in that sense of dying, you know, as a martyr, like we talked about before, uh, if you will not live as a witness for Christ now. So you begin to live for Christ, and then you will see that. Paul said in one of his letters, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The only way to get to the place where you realize that dying is gain is by living for Christ. Okay, we have two more questions. The next one says, how do I experience the presence of God? Um, well, you know, one of the things that I've thought often on is to consider where God has promised to be in the scriptures. Uh, in other words, what are the things that he says, and I will be with you uh, in this very thing? So one of those is, as we go to be involved in great commission endeavors, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, he says at the end of that, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So I think that there is a promise of Christ to be with us, his presence with us, as we go to be engaged in those things. Uh, Psalm 22 says that he inhabits the praises of his people. So as we praise God, there is a sense in which God is everywhere, but there is also a sense in which his presence is particularly there when we are praising him. He's also in the midst of those gathered together in his name. Matthew 18 says, so when we gather together with other believers in fellowship, there's a sense in which God's presence is more there, I guess you could say, than in other areas. Uh, also in the Psalm, Psalm 34, it says that God is, is near to the brokenhearted. So I think that when we are ministering to people who are in that place, uh, I have certainly experienced that God's presence seems to be just all the more evident, if you will. I think that's the best way of saying it. When I am ministering to those who are brokenhearted, and um, James says that draw near to him, he will draw near to us. So as we draw near to him in his word and through prayer and through worship, uh, we, we do experience, I think, a, a greater sense of the presence of God. And then the final question here, if Jesus is going to judge and hold people personally responsible for their sin, how do we talk about this in a culture that struggles with individual responsibility? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, obviously, we do see that our culture has an issue with this. They, this is one of the issues that they have with Christianity, the idea that God will ultimately judge people for their sin. That said, we do not believe that people should get um, no punishment, if you will, for their unrighteous or immoral things done. So when we see someone who murders or we hear about someone who is a rapist or a pedophile, we have a strong conviction. And quite frankly, that strong conviction or desire for justice, that's part of being created in the image of God. So in the image of God, he made us male and female. Genesis chapter one says, so part of being created in the image of God means that we have a strong desire for justice. And so that strong desire for justice um, that every single one of us have when we see someone do something that is horrible, offensive, wrong, immoral, whatever it is, uh, then we have to recognize that God is just and therefore there will be a reward for unrighteousness and there will be a punishment for sin. We may not like that in the concept of, we, we generally start to, we extend that out and we say, well, what about these people that didn't hear God? Listen, God 
is righteous, and our sense of justice comes nowhere near to his actual performing of justice. So he will be just. And in thinking about this, I, I always go back to the words of God, or really the words of Abraham more in the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, but he's also all the, the father of all those who are of faith, says the New Testament. But in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, we have the curious story of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and three other cities in the south there in that region. And when God is revealing what he's going to do to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham, Abraham knows that his nephew, Lot, lives in that area. And he's concerned for Lot and he's concerned for anyone who would be righteous or... Uh, you know, walking in rightness there in that place. So Abraham intercedes, which is the proper response of a follower of God to the realities of God's justice and judgment is to intercede. We see that with Abraham. We see that with Moses. It's a, it's a reality. So he intercedes on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot. And one of the things that God says, as God is revealing what he's going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham asks, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And this is the right question. If we believe that God is just and he is going to judge those who are unjust, which we all agree that injustice should be judged, then we want the judge of the earth to be righteous in his judgment. So our expectations of justice and righteousness, they pale in comparison to God's actual justice and righteousness. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 11 that God, he does not judge by the seeing of the eyes or the hearing of the ears, but he judges with righteous judgment. So we, the best that we can do in our justice systems, and I would think, well, in many respects, our justice system in the United States is one of the better ones. Not the best. There's certainly problems with it, um, but one of the best. And when you gather together a jury of your peers, and maybe, maybe you've been called for jury duty before, and you are going to hear testimony and see evidence, and you have to make a determination for justice on based on testimony and evidence. But God, and we realize we, we fail in that sometimes, but God, it says he does not judge according to the seeing of the, eye, seeing of the eyes, just evidence or the hearing of the ears, testimony, but he judges by righteous judgment. So we can expect that God will be just when he judges, and that is our our hope and our expectation when he does deal with injustice in this world. And we know that he will deal with injustice in this world. And you know, the amazing thing is it's, it's only really Westerners, Americans, that have a hard time with the ultimate justice of a just God, i.e. God sending people to hell. We are the only ones that seem to have an issue with that. You go to other parts of the world where there is so much injustice and so much wickedness and the malevolence of wicked people is seen more clearly in those places the idea and the concept of an ultimate judgment i.e hell is a, a blessing and an encouragement to those who have seen such severe and wicked justice in this world and perhaps it's just a reality of us having not experienced that praise the lord we don't experience severe injustice and malevolence here in the west in the united states but if we did, I think that hell, we would see that as a greater blessing, really, knowing that there is an ultimate judge. There's hope in that when you see the wickedness of this world. You say, well, ultimately, God will judge. Challenging things to consider. Uh, lots of good questions coming in. I think that about sums it up. 
Uh, we're going to be getting into some new teaching here. We just finished this series on purpose last week. We're going to be coming back to Paul's letter to Timothy, his last letter, 2 Timothy, Paul's last words, and a lot of really good things for us to consider as we finish up the second half of 2 Timothy in the first half of this year. So hopefully you'll listen back with us here and we'll answer some more questions. God bless.